Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and it says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You can be seated. Alex, good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us today. Um, it is uh, a privilege to be here among you. I wanted to, uh, hey, I, d- I did want to say uh, real quick, man, I noticed today, um, the last several Sundays, just a lot of new faces. And man, it's just been an incredible uh, season of growth for us as a new church. And I, uh, I just want to make sure nobody falls through the cracks. I just want to reiterate, um, if you're new, if you've just been visiting here recently and you're interested in uh, learning more about Rooted, If you fill out a connection card today, I'd love to just follow up with you this week, maybe chat with you on the phone or buy you lunch or a cup of coffee and just tell you a little bit more about our church. So uh, really thankful that you're here. It's been an incredible season of uh, just lots of evidences of God's grace. And so I just want to make sure that invite is out there uh, over and over again. This morning, we are continuing our catechism series. And this was a uh, interesting text because it kind of took me a little different direction than maybe I would have intended when we first uh, started talking about this series and looking at the different catechisms. This sermon is somewhat unique in that, uh, you know, a lot of times there's kind of multiple ways to approach an expository sermon. You can take a chapter of the Bible and kind of walk through a long section of text and just kind of see the story and take everything from there and look to the gospel truth that it points to. But the crazy thing about preaching, studying God's word is that you could take that same chapter that you just did one sermon on, you could take one verse and you could spend multiple sermons likely just digging deeper into that one verse. And neither way is right or wrong. It's kind of shows us why like studying God's word never comes to a place of completion because you can never stop digging and sifting through the goodness within God's word. You can never preach the whole Bible and have no need to go again because if you preach the same book a second time, if you study the same book a second time, there's so much there that you didn't find before. And so uh, today we're doing something a little different in that we are just taking this one verse, Genesis 1:27, and I wanna talk about the truth that we learned from this verse And also, I want to take from it how we are to respond to those who oppose this truth. Uh, Last month, I did multiple, like, college fairs where I went and welcomed new college students to town. And that was just a really great experience. And I only had one awkward interaction between multiple college fairs. On one day, at a particular college, I won't say which one, a student came to me, and he came to the booth, and he had a very serious manner on his face. And it's like loud in here, there's lots of people in line, I'm saying hi to everybody. And he says, I need to know your position on critical race theory, the LGBTQT community, and also liberalism. And I, I kind of snickered, like, oh, that's funny, you know, like, as if I could actually, like, unpack all of that here. And then I, like, we're yelling, we're having to talk loud to talk one another, there's a line of people. And then I realized, like, no, this dude is serious, like he wants to unpack all this right now. And so I kind of gave, you know, I explained the gospel and the, what we, you know, the, and how we view God's word. And then he wanted to very specifically know, how often do you preach on each of those items on an annual basis? And I was like, oh my gosh, what is happening here? And I explained to him what I want to just explain to you today. I explained to him that we preach through God's word. 
We preach books of the Bible. We don't start new series based on whatever's in the news. We walk through God's word and we believe that if you do that, you will come to everything at some point. He was not satisfied with this response. I've, somebody else got that to deal with. We did not, we realized pretty quickly it wasn't gonna work out. But I say that today, I share that story because I just wanna share, today is one of those days. Um, we're gonna talk about some cultural things today that I really didn't intend to when we started the catechism series, but it's what came from God's word. And that's how we, res that's how we approach cultural issues. We walk through God's word and we trust him to lead and bring forth the truth that we need at the right time. Uh, expository preaching is our method for addressing cultural issues. And this is probably one of those sermons that will come to haunt me when I run for president. One day, I want to uh, read for you again, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this week, this week and next week, we're going to be talking about God's creation. And this week, we're talking about how the how God created. Scripture tells us that God created us. He created us fully formed and on a specific day, that being the sixth day. And Scripture tells us that God created both man and woman and that he created both in his image. Scripture shows us in this text that all men and women were created in the image of God with no exception, not merely the redeemed people of God and not merely Adam and Eve, Genesis 9.6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So Genesis 9, this is post-fall. We're out of the garden. This isn't just Adam and Eve. And God is saying, if you shed the blood of man, your blood's going to be shed because all of humanity, despite the fall, despite the despair of the world in Genesis 9, God still in his graciousness identifies that all of humanity was created in his image. And then jumping to the New Testament, James 3, 9, James is speaking to the church and he says, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And so James is coming at the church and identifying to them like you are speaking to people in such a way with your mocking and your crudeness that it doesn't reflect the respect they are due as image bearers of God. That no matter who we disagree with, no matter what truth we bring forth, we are to bring forth a level of love to all people and the way we express and approach them like Christ did because on, solely on the basis of them being image bearers of God. James appeals to our status as image bearers to make the point that all human life has value on the basis of God's image. And this is why, as a church, we believe, like, we are pro-life. Like, we believe that all of life, that the pagan and the saint, that the baby in the womb, that the refugee, that all of life, all humans, are created in the image of God and thus have value on that basis. And so what does it mean that we're image bearers? It means that within all of humanity, we see something of the nature of God. And God is a creator. And thus, we are prone to create things. God is just. And thus, we desperately desire justice, even if we can't get it right. We create judicial systems. We create laws. Because deep within every human is a desire for justice, even if the desire is distorted by sin and the fall. God is love. 
And thus we have affections for one another. Whether you are among the children of God or not, you know what it is to love and care for another because God is loving and caring. And God is strong. And thus we desire strength and valor. It's why every one of our, you know, every popular movie is about the same things. It's either about love that reflects in us that we were created by a loving God, or it's about a hero who's valiant and saves the day and opposes the enemy because we were created in the image of a God who is exactly that. In these ways, our very nature reflects the one who created us. Yet, an image is meant not only to reflect its creator, but to magnify its creator. John Piper, when when defining what it means to be an image bearer, he says this, if you create an image, if you make a sculpture of someone, you do it to display something about that someone. You put it in the square in the middle of town and you want people to look at it, notice it, think about that person and to think something about them. This is why sculptures exist. This is why memorials exist. In the same way, as image bearers of God, we are created to point people to God, to magnify him, to reveal the truth of who he is in the way that we live and steward his creation. We were uniquely created to reveal truths about God through his intentional design. And I want to take a minute, and I want to talk about that intentional design Scripture tells us clearly we were created uniquely male and female. Unlike the recent New York Times article that attempted to make the case that there are as many as seven sexes, the Bible and scientific evidence shows us continually that there are only two sexes. And God tells us here that that's male and female. And within these two sexes, we see a great deal of creativity and uniqueness, okay? Women are not Barbie dolls, and men are not caricatures from beer commercials. Like, it's not that simple, okay? We are uniquely created, and each sex has some shared and natural characteristics, but also a great deal of uniqueness. And we need not be afraid of that uniqueness, as this was God's intentional and loving design. Now, I want to give you a couple examples of this. Bear with me for a minute. Okay, like, the world is incredibly fearful of talking about the uniqueness of men and women, like the obvious uniqueness. And even now, you might feel a little bit of like, I don't know if we're supposed to be talking about this. <laughs> It'll be online. It's cool. I wasn't going to be president anyway. Like, men were created to be physically stronger than women. This is simply science. I, I open a lot of pickle jars in my house. This is just the way that it goes. And this is because men were created not only to lead their families, but to protect and to provide for them. And in most of history, this was incredibly obvious and imperative. Okay, like physical strength was absolutely required to provide for and to protect a family. Like the only reason you owned your land is because when the dude showed up to take your land, you were gonna defend it. Like that, that was the law for a huge portion of history. You didn't provide for, you weren't able to provide for your family by sitting at a coffee shop on your iPad, like typing something. Like that's a new thing and by all means, evidence of God's grace if you can do that, but on the plains, it didn't work that way. Like your only option for providing for a family was to exert physical strength for long periods of time over and over again. 
And men were created with this gift of God for this purpose. And this is open to discussion as a culture today only because cultural circumstances allow it to be. If cultural circumstances did not allow this discussion, like they weren't talking about this back then because it was, there was no room to talk about it. This was the nature of survival. However, this does not mean that a woman cannot be physically strong. It doesn't mean that a woman cannot help provide for her family, and it certainly does not mean that a woman who is physically strong is anything other than a woman. And our culture is very confused about this. On the same hand, women were created by nature as being more nurturing than men. But hold on with me for a second, okay? For some reason, this is a controversial thing to say today, but the truth is, like scientifically, we know this is true, not just in humans, but in like almost all species. This is because women were created to love and to nurture humanity, whether their own children or humans in need. And I'm not saying that men aren't part of that, but I am saying there is a unique element to the way that a woman loves and serves. Like you don't have to teach a new mom that much about babies. Like there's just something they already know and it's beautiful and it reflects the way in which God created them. Because for most of human history, once again, the concept of both spouses working outside the home was impossible. Like there was no daycare on the plains. Like that wasn't, you didn't survive that way. That was not a reality. That was not what God had. In, like when God created us, he created humans knowing what most of history would require. Women were designed with this natural inclination to love and nurture. However, this does not mean that a man shouldn't be nurturing. It doesn't mean that a father is not equally involved in every way in raising his kids and or serving and loving others. It just means simply, as Kara pointed out, that we do well to copy women quite often, okay? Like, I've made a, a lifetime of that. That's why I got married so early. I found a woman that I need to copy her in every way I possibly can, and I've spent my days seeking to do so. This certainly does not mean that if a man, a man who is more nurturing by nature is anything other than a man, and once again, culture gets confused about this. Humans have always struggled with this reality. And if you look historically, it seems that the more success an empire experiences, the more it begins to test the boundaries of God's definitions for creation and to try to reorient God's definitions of man and woman. Rome was not unlike America in this way. Like before the fall of Rome, Rome was very much engaged in much of the same things we experience today, the same cultural discussions, just without the technology, the reorienting of what is a man, what is a woman, of God's design was a huge part of just the, the, the messiness of Roman culture that ultimately preceded its demise. Here is where I want to pivot for a minute. Most of us, I think most of us hear this and we generally agree. Like maybe we don't, we don't talk about it a lot, but we, we teach on biblical manhood and womanhood and we're doing that in some specific ways amongst our men's and women's groups this year. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to dive in a whole lot further there. What I do want to talk about though is how do we respond to those who see this so differently, to a world that cannot talk about these things and opposes any who do. That's where I want to spend some of our time 
the rest of today. When we consider the culture's confusion in regards to gender identity, it would do us well to consider the tendencies of our own heart apart from Christ. What is it we desire? What do, what do, what do we want? We want to belong. We want to be loved. We want to feel accepted. We want to be part of something. All of these desires are meant to be filled by a holy and just God. But when we do not have God, we look elsewhere. We look elsewhere. Consider a recent trend in our country as an example of this longing. The term gender dysphoria is a term that's existed for a long time, and it is a legitimate medical terminology for someone who struggles to accept and to embrace the, the, the identity, their sex. The medical definition for this term is a persistent unease with having the physical characteristics of one's gender, accompanied by strong identification with the opposite gender. This is legitimate. It's not saying they actually are another gender, but it's saying there is a persistent unease that a, a, a portion of our population has. Gender dysphoria used to afflict 0.01% of the US population. This would be like one in 10,000 people. So more than likely, you'd live, you'd live, you might live your whole life probably never knowing anybody who's dealing with this. However, today, nearly 2% of high school students alone in the US identify as transgender according to a recent CDC report. That's 1.1 million kids who make up the fastest growing number of our percentage of our country that identifies in this way. From this 1.1 million, a large majority, for whatever reason, I probably attribute it a lot to cultural pressures, a majority are teenage girls. We know this because from 2016 to 2017, the number of gender surgeries amongst teenage girls quadrupled in the United States for the first time ever. Lisa Littman is a professor of behavioral sciences at Brown University. As far as I know, she is not a Christian. And she published a very lengthy report, uh, did a very lengthy study on why this trend was happening. She published a study, and her study was a result of interviewing 250 parents of students who identified as trans. Out of these 250, she found that 83% were young ladies, and more than one-third had friendship groups in which 50% or more of the youth began at the similar time frame to identify as transgender. I believe that this case study done by Brown University could perhaps give us a unique window into America's gender confusion. It certainly doesn't speak for all, but it reflects something of the longing that has always led one to rebel against God's design and his work. As a culture, we have made free expression the highest of human pursuits. Temporary happiness is our idol, and we have been willing to sacrifice our kids to that idol. In 2019, when that CDC report came out, it also revealed that of that 1.1 million teens, 35% of them had attempted suicide within the previous 12 months. With the growing number of youth detransitioning, which is a totally a report all on its own that is fascinating as adults, perhaps we can conclude 
that there is something more than gender dysphoria taking place in the hearts and minds of many people. Perhaps we see young people entering into the most vulnerable time period of their life, desiring to simply belong to something. Men and women are all unique, and none of us fit the sitcom stereotypes we grew up with to a T. Some of the best bakers in the world are men, and you could not pay me to get into a ring with Ronda Rousey. Like stereotypes, just, that just doesn't, that doesn't work. But rather than seeing our unique attributes as evidence of God's loving, unique design, we create this falsehood, the world creates this falsehood, that we can just simply be whatever we want to be. Not only can you be whatever you want to be, but you should be. And when you take a stance to be whatever you want to be, to put aside the word of God, you instantly become some, a, a form of a hero to the world. The world sells that to you. The opportunity to be a hero, to have value that you have always been missing. Yet the gospel says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Common grace is revealed in your unique design even if you do not accept the Lord who created you. And the value you are seeking is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ who offers perfect eternal value no name change necessary. I speak about this because this is a real issue in the world, in the community where we live. And as a Christian, this conflict ought to evoke two responses in us. That being both love and truth. We've been speaking about love and truth a lot here lately because we live in the midst of times that are heightened for all kinds of reasons. And I believe when we boil down the approach of Christ, we continually see this beautiful combination of love and truth. When we're speaking about love, we recognize that our, our culture's confusion regarding gender and sexual ethics is not a socioeconomic problem. It is, in fact, a God problem. Make no mistake, if Christ is not who he says he is, if God is not on his throne, then they are right and we are wrong. If there is no redeemer, then we would do well to follow suit in seeking nothing but happiness and delight in this life. Try whatever you must, for tomorrow we die. But if we acknowledge that living water comes only through the redemption of Christ Jesus, then it is not difficult to understand why the lost are constantly seeking sustenance in the cultural sewers. Scripture tells us as much. In John 8, we see a striking scene and one of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture. I want to read John 8 to you uh, this morning and uh, I want to take just a minute to consider uh, Christ's approach uh, to uh, the ways of the world here in this text. In John 8, we encounter the woman caught in adultery, and it says this. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, 
let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. There is a lot in this section of John 8. First of all, we see this incredibly sketchy situation. All right, the Pharisees bring forth this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery, which, like, how does that even work out anyway? Like, had, like the, the grounds for making this accusation because death was at stake required a high level of evidence, and they come having what they need. But there's an interesting thing the Pharisees do here that's easy to overlook. They actually misquote the law of Moses. The law of Moses, if you go back and actually look, clearly states that if a man and woman are caught in the act of adultery, they were both to be stoned, like both of them were to be brought forth. Yet not only do they misquote the law of Moses, but the man is nowhere to be seen. These were the Pharisees, like they knew the law of Moses. That's like their whole deal. Like that's all they do is know the law of Moses. They did not misquote this accidentally. They misquoted it intentionally, which tells us from the get-go there is a shady thing happening here altogether. This was clearly set up in a very corrupt way to set up Jesus. And the way that they had Jesus set up is because in their minds, they put a lot of thought into this. These guys don't have a lot going on, like not a lot of hobbies. Jesus has two options here. He either tells them to disregard the law of Moses, in which case he is worthy, I mean, he's guilty of breaking the law and they have grounds right then and there to arrest him, no questions asked, got him. Or this whole love and mercy thing he's talking about, they could totally wipe that out because he told us to stone this woman and all of a sudden he's just not quite as loving as he seemed, is he? Like that, this was, in their mind, this is a win-win scenario, but Jesus like, knew they were coming before they came and is way smarter than them. So in this moment of just like absolute cool, calm collectedness, Jesus is just like down here doodling on the ground. We don't even know what he's doodling, but I, I, I'm sure it was hilarious, whatever it is. I'm sure he's just like mocking them and writing. Like I, I like to think he's writing like the actual law of Moses down, but I don't know. And he stands up and he confronts them and he says, whichever one of you is without sin, Go ahead, like do it. You Sounds like you're worthy to do it. And then it, scripture tells us this hilarious little detail that they start filing out and the older ones, like the ones who knew what was going on, like they filed out first. Like they knew they had been had. They knew they looked like fools. And then Jesus is left, just him and this woman. And we see something about how Jesus responds to this woman. First of all, he shows love to her. Now, he does not justify her choices. He does not encourage her sin, but he does value her. He stands in between her and the religious pile of rocks. He makes known to the religious that her sins are no worse than theirs, that she is no more in need of a redeemer than they are, that apart from Christ, she is just as lost as they are. Jesus is drawn to her, he desires to be in her presence. She is the kind of person that Jesus is known for befriending, and that's why the Pharisees picked her, because they knew this about him. He values her even before she is redeemed, because she is still an image bearer of God. 
And thus we see a model for loving and valuing those engulfed in sin and living apart from Christ. But then, in an incredible act of grace, he does the thing that we can't do. He redeems her. He stands in her place. Based on the standard that Jesus presented, whichever one of you is without sin, be the first to throw a stone. Jesus is the only guy in the room who could meet that. Like he would have been justified in picking up the rock himself. He was the only one who would have been justified in that. He met that standard, and yet he chooses to show love and mercy to this woman. And he tells her that he does not condemn her. What she had looked for, probably for many years, in the midst of sin, in the midst of trying to belong, she has now found in Jesus Christ. And with that blessing of redemption, he sets her on a new journey. He gives her what she'll need for the road ahead. He gives her not only love, but he gives her truth. He tells her to go and sin no more. Enough. And this sounds simple, but in this simple command, Jesus does multiple things. One, he affirms that the woman has committed sin. Regardless of the corrupt circumstance, Jesus tells her to stop sinning. So yes, the circumstances were corrupt, but they were corrupt knowing that she would take the bait, and she did. Second, he tells her to repent. That is to not continue her sin anymore. But he doesn't just tell her to repent. In this simple statement, as he looks upon her, he gives her hope that her life could go on in freedom from sexual sin. The desires, the confusion, the world's influence, these things would not go away entirely. But now she has the power of the gospel to overcome such things. This word he gives her is a word of hope. I have no doubt that she would surely need to recall this scene time and time again. There would be many days where she is going to need to sit and remember Jesus looking at her and saying, I don't condemn you. On days when she would recall shame and when that shame would threaten to overwhelm her. And Jesus gives her that gift. And this encounter, these things that, are, that Jesus says to her and the truth behind them are true for all of us. Like the Pharisees, none of us are able to throw a stone. It's Christ who redeems and it's Christ who judges. Thus, truth and love are our model and our continual anthem. Not one without the other, but both. When we encounter those who are confused, those who are lost, we need not fear. Because truth and love are the tracks on which the gospel is delivered to those who are in need of rescue. We do not come, it is not loving to come without truth, but truth that is not accompanied by love is something other than the gospel. By God's grace, he uses those who have been rescued to deliver his glorious promise. And that's what we've been called to do in an age of confusion, in an age of more than confusion, in an age of animosity. We are not to respond with the same animosity. We respond with something totally different, truth and love. And we respond in those ways all the way to our death if we must, because the truth that we hold to is worthy of our lives. As we close this morning, I want to appeal to you that the kind of Christ-like love these moments of kindness and friendship amongst sinners, these are the good deeds of the Christian life. 
This is the means by which our light shines in the midst of dark places, which is where it is meant to be. To what end does our light shine? And for what purpose do we live out these good deeds? Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine among men, that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Today we've discussed the how of God's creation, and next week we'll focus on the why of God's creation, and the why being the eternal glory of God. The glory of Christ is not less than the ways that we reflect him when we embrace our unique design through biblical manhood and womanhood, or the truth we reveal about him when we show loving kindness and share biblical truth to the one who is lost. But while the glory of God is not less than these things, it is certainly far more than just these things. When we speak of the glory of God, we are speaking of the perfect harmony of all of his attributes into one infinitely beautiful and personal being. All that we do, all that we are, is intended to make much of the one who is worthy of all glory and praise. What's unique about God amongst all others is that for him, it is, it is not selfish to desire glory. He tells us as men not to seek out glory because none of us are worthy of it. And so for us, like the idea that God has created man and woman simply for his glory, like that's a, a difficult thing to wrap our heads around. I mean, it, it seems selfish if we're honest. Like why, what, like we're, we're not supposed to, why, why is glory that important? But that's because we have never known one other in Jesus who was actually worthy of the glory with which they were to be given. That's a different stratosphere. And next week, we're going to spend time talking about that because for perfect, for the one who is perfect and worthy of glory, it is just right and the purpose of all creation to give that glory. For the Christian, for the human, the question is not what makes me happy or what fulfills me. The continual question is what gives glory to the God who is worthy? Because though he is loving, though he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he will not tolerate forever those who do not give him glory, but instead regards something else as more glorious, more worthy of allegiance. The Lord tells us, my glory I will not give to another. Our Lord is worthy of his glory. And thus, we stand firm on God's word and the things that he has taught us and shown us about creation, about our design. We stand firm in the midst of a world that would like to recreate such things. But we do so, not as mockers and scoffers, not as those who are highly anxious and fearful, for we have nothing to be fearful of. My, my, my eternity is set in stone. I need not fear. And it's through that lens that I can, we can come in such a way as those, as a non-anxious presence that comes with truth and love, modeling the non-anxiousness of Christ himself, who in the midst of culture ready to throw rocks and kill him is doodling in the sand because there was a perfect calmness in Christ that came through a perfect assurance. And by the blood of Jesus, we have been given that perfect assurance. And so we can live unashamed of being biblical men and women, not needing to be fearful of the world's definitions and their scorn. And we can come and show love to those who oppose us, those who stand against, 
because we are not anything better than them outside of Jesus Christ who came and rescued us. And would we give him praise for that rescue and pray to that end this morning? God, you are a good and gracious king. You are a merciful deliverer. You rescued us in the midst of our sin, of our brokenness. We were drowning in an ocean of sin and death, and you reached down your strong arm and plucked us out and breathed life into our bodies. Lord, would we never cease to cling to your word above all else. Each day that passes, we will experience pressures, rather light or uh, gradually far heavier, to bow to the world's definitions, to worship Babylon more than you. Lord, would we never give in to such things? Would we hold to your word with the assurance that you have granted us through Jesus Christ? Lord, would we be unashamed to speak truth? God, I ask in the name of Jesus that our truth would always be motivated by love. And Lord, I ask that you might rebuke us strongly when it is not. Lord, keep us from responding in fear the way that the world does. Lord, like the Pharisees, we can be the church. We can be prone uh, to say Christian things, but to have the same heart as the world. Lord, let that not be so. Let that not be so amongst these people. Would truth and love be our mantra over and over again? Would our light shine in the midst of the darkness? Not, for, not, that, not that we might feel justified, but that you might be glorified. Lord, I ask that you would use our church to that end over and over again. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning... Uh, if you are a Christian, we invite you to come to the communion table. At the communion table, we take a second and we step outside of the rhythms of our normal day and uh, the normal world in which we live, and we remind ourselves that we are not citizens of just this world, that we are not citizens of this place, that the things that occupy our schedule day in and day out are not the end all for us, but we are citizens of another world, of the kingdom to come. And we come to the table and we get a glimpse of that world when we come as a family around this table and we take with our hands that which we need our hearts to believe. And that is the truth of the gospel revealed in bread and wine. Make no mistake, the point of communion, the reason that Jesus told the disciples to continue doing this is because Jesus recognized the disciples would need the gospel not one time to be saved, but every day, every moment of their lives. He knew that they were going on to face certain deaths, and that the only way they were going to be able to enter a world and stand firm in the midst of being spat on, hollered at, condemned, the only way they would hold firm is through the same power of the gospel that sent the woman on her way in peace. And so he told them to do this in remembrance of me, knowing that this is another way that the gospel would be preached to them, not only them, though, to ourselves. So when we come to the communion table, the reason we do it every week is because we believe we need the gospel as much as we possibly can. And so when you take that bread, I want you to remember that as you break that bread, as you tear it, Christ's body was broken and torn. 
And Christ's body was broken and torn so that your record of lawlessness could be broken. That you were no, you, like the Pharisees, you could not throw that stone. You're guilty before a perfectly holy God, a God who is worthy of all glory. You have done many things that have not glorified him. And thus, you are worthy of just punishment. Like God being rich in mercy through Jesus Christ. He, he, through Jesus' broken body, like he's, he's removed that record. That record no longer exists. And not only does that record not lo- no longer exist, no, no longer are you not only being sentenced to death, but you've been far more than that. Not only have you been exonerated, but the judge, he didn't just say not guilty and send you on your way. The judge actually stepped down off the podium. He came and took you from behind the bench. He took his credit card out of his pocket. He put it in your pocket. He put a ring on your finger and he said, you're now my son. Not only have, you, have I declared you innocent, but you're now an heir to my inheritance. You're part of my family. Through the blood of Jesus, which is reflected through the juice, Christ's righteousness was poured out on you so that you could come and be with the Father and be part of his family. So when you come to the communion table this morning, this is no light thing. Take a few minutes and remember the gospel. And then when you're ready, come and partake. If you are not a Christian this morning, if you listen to this, to this and, and may, maybe, maybe it even makes you angry, like I, I'm, I'm not, if Jesus isn't the Lord of your life, communion's not for you, but Jesus is for you. Don't worry about communion, but I, I'd love to hear your objections. I'd love to sit with you and tell you about Jesus and, and why we hold to him above all else. So Christian, when you're ready, come and partake of the great communion supper.